If the Bible's got you tied in knots If you're burdened with religious thoughts Come grab a drink and join the choir It's Heretic Happy Hour Well, hello all of you beautiful people out there in podcast land. Uh, welcome to the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. And uh, we have an amazing podcast for you. Uh, it's uh, going to be an amazing one, and um, we'll jump right into it. My name is Keith Giles. Uh, I am the author of Jesus Untangled, uh, Crucifying Our Politics to Pledge Allegiance to the Lamb. And uh, soon, a new book coming out July 4th, Jesus Unbound, Liberating the Word of God from the Bible. Woo -woo. And I am, woohoo! And I'm joined by my fellow choir authors and uh, podcast co hosts, Jamal and Matt. Guys, introduce yourselves. Hi, friends. This is Jamal, and it is a pleasure to be back with you. I'm author of uh, Free to Love. It was published a couple years ago with the choir, and <clears throat> I'm also working on a second book, which I'm not at liberty to discuss with you right now. <laughs> oh, boy, it's Man. top secret. I, I, know I know about it. Can I talk about it? Uh, maybe. No. No. N not yet. Okay. You can't. Right. Oh, Jamal will have to kill you at that point. Mm. Okay. Or my publisher. And, oh, you're, yeah, right. And I am uh, Matthew J. Magdalene, author of the recently uh, <laughs> recently released Heretic, of course, out on Choir Publishing. And uh, as always, we are brought to you by the Unfundamentalist Group Blog. And they are focused on following Jesus' commandments to love God and neighbor. And they're dedicated to opposing the toxic, power-mongering, fear-inflaming nonsense that is inherent in economic, political, societal, and religious fundamentalism. Find them online at facebook.com slash unfundamentalist or read their blog at unfundamentalists.com. Yeah. And I would like to make an announcement if that's okay. Take it away. Bring it on. Yeah. I wanted to just um, let the listeners know that we have decided to um, to kick off a, a hotline uh, for the oh, wow. for the show. Yeah. Um, we felt like it would be a good mm -hmm. idea to have a hotline, like a, a hotline where, where the listeners could call in and share comments or, you know, disagreements huh. or anything really um wow. <clears throat> because we have the technology available to do that now and um so let me give you the number um the number is for and everybody you know get write this down um it is area code 2403 heresy or 2403437379 is the number of the hotline and you can call that literally any time of the day or night and you know, if right. there's not an operator standing by, you can just leave a, little, a voicemail and we will get that. And then we will read your comment on the air if it's appropriate, obviously. If it's good. If it's good. <clears throat> yeah. No, if, if know, it's good. Yeah. Make sure the language is clean and, you know, nothing. nothing <laughs> <Right. appropriate>. Yeah. <laughs> We're really concerned about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so basically, I think um, we do have a voicemail. Is that right for, for this week? Hi, um, I just started listening to you guys, and um, I'm really enjoying it because I'm on the same wavelength. I do have one question. Um, I'm pretty much straight-laced, uh, you know, black and white, was brought up Catholic and was Baptist. And um, I had an encounter and um, with the Holy Spirit, and now I'm charismatic, something I never heard of or never would have believed if someone talked to me about it. So, um, so I speak in tongues, full language, and I, um, with that, it's really opened up my mind and saw lots of, I, 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 my 
understanding of the Bible just like tripled in once I got that gift. Um, hence, now I'm in the line where you guys are. So, anyways, my question is: Is anyone on the panel charismatic? Um, I haven't figured that one out yet. Um, and where do you guys stand on the gifts of the Spirit? Um, so that I would like to know. Uh, well, yeah. Thanks for the um, the call. I, I'm not sure where I stand on uh, the charismatics. The the only, I mean, the the interactions I've had with with charismatics were folks like um, Bill John, excuse me, Bill Johnson, Chris Volaton, um, and they're just an hour and a half up the road from me, and I'm like not vibing with them at all. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> I guess we'd have to discuss what charis charismatics are i mean i i don't know necessarily what that even means well yeah can, can, let me um because i i think i would call myself charismatic and not theologically like right like i don't align with bill johnson and those guys bethel right. and those guys right um so i understand there's a lot of baggage that typically goes along with charismatic uh christianity like typically it's things like you know you have to speak in tongues to be saved or it's always god's will to heal and all yeah. that and i yeah. i reject those ideas, yeah, that's but I'm not a cessationist. I'm not a cessationist. So, I mean, right. I, I do, I think I told you, Matt, when you were, you were down here visiting, uh -huh. um, a couple of weeks ago, you and I were driving in the car. I told you the story of how, uh, I ended up speaking in tongues. Right. And so, you know, that wasn't something I'm, I'm a Baptist. I was raised Baptist. So, uh, I never really even wanted or expected to speak in Naturally. tongues. <laughs> um, yeah, of course. I mean, really it never entered my mind, right. but, but now that this happened to me and completely just out of the blue, <clears throat> I mean, I always was open to the gifts of the spirit. So I guess I'm, I'm open to charismatic gifts. Uh, like I've experienced gifts of knowledge and wisdom. People have known things, prophetically spoken things to me that were, that were true, uh, several times. So yeah, I, I guess I'm open to all that. Yeah. It's a great comment. <clears throat> it's a great, uh, yeah. yeah, I, I understand where you, uh, the caller is coming from. Um, I, I don't like the labels. I think they're not helpful, but I get what she's saying. I get where, you know, uh, I think in my own journey, when I look back on my own um, journey in even evangelical Christianity, um, <clears throat> I went from primarily relating to God from, um, I mean, I've had po pockets and obviously I think it's an interesting call in light of what we're going to be talking about today. But um, when, it, when, you, when it comes to the nature of revelation, I mean, I think, you know, true revelation happens not at not um, at the expense of the cerebral mind, but it transcends it. So I think when you start to, I, I had an experience experiences where I began to relate to the divine beyond my um, beyond my my logical mind, and 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 then so when when you start to like, I've had those experiences where, yeah, people would may label that and say, oh, well, that's a charismatic, that's a gift of the spirit, and all that. I honestly think it's just human. Ultimately, I don't think it's something people say supernatural. I actually think it's quite natural. I just don't think most people operate in the natural. Um, I, again, when it comes to healing, I think healing is quite natural. I think it's quite normal. I don't think it's extraordinary. People start often with the wrong uh, vantage point. They start with like sickness is normal. It's not normal. Um, you know, I, those kinds of things. I, think, I feel like personally, like Jesus operated. If you want to know what normal human humanity is, you just look at Jesus it's kind of normal. I think obviously humanity has been operating abnormally for quite some time. And that's why it's a 
it is a process and learning what it means to be a human and to learn. So like healing and all these kinds of things, like I actually don't think Jesus healed anybody. You can read the gospels. I mean, I think he might've healed one person. I think, <laughs> but, but like most people, he didn't, I don't think he healed. He, and actually he even said that like whenever he would heal somebody and they'd be like, want to give him credit. He goes, look, it was your faith that made you whole. And again, in the charismatic world, that's been abused a lot. If you know, if you're not healed, you need to have enough faith and that kind of thing. I'm not. I'm not saying that at all. No, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah I, I don't. Sure. I don't think anybody lacks faith. I think people lack access to what they already have. But Jesus would always say, "Hey, look, it was your faith that made you whole." I mean, he he actually was very clear, not wanting people to mistake that it was him doing it. He wanted to say, "Look, it's your faith." He just helped us tap into what we already have, which I do believe is the essence of what his message was. The kingdom of God is something you already have. Everything you need is already within you. You already possess everything, which I believe is not the message of Christianity, but I do believe is the message of Jesus and was the message early on before we got hijacked. So, you know, I think, you know, so again, charismatic for sure, but, um, but I, I don't like the label and I don't think it's supernatural. I think it's quite yeah. natural. Well, I think we should do a, um, this is definitely a topic we could do a whole podcast on like the gifts of the spirit and maybe go down some of that. That That's a great question. Uh, thank you so much, uh, caller. And um, I would like to talk about, I have an announcement to make as well. If people don't know, we have a Patreon page and uh, you can find it at, um, I guess it's patreon.com slash heretic happy hour. And oh my gosh, we have, we have hit our first goal. So thank you all so much who contributed. Uh, I want to thank our latest patrons to the, the website, David Crook, my friend Ben Larson. Ben, my homeboy, love you. Blake Chemis, Mark Ballard, Michael Machuga, and Mallory Winnie Mae Tutton. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and everybody else who is also uh, supporting us. And here's what you have helped us to do. Uh, by helping us hit our first tier goal, we are now going to create a board game. It's going to be the Heretic Happy Hour board game. It's called The Slippery Slope, A Heretic's Journey. And I want to give you an update on that. So we've been, we've already finished writing the questions. We, um, you're going to, you're going to travel through four different magical lands. You kind of start off in hell. Yeah, you'll start off in hell and then you'll make it out of there and then you'll make it through like uh, Calvin's Corner and King James Kingdom and Perfect Pastor's Pasture and things like that. And you have to answer the questions to to get all the way to the very end, which I, I don't know what that is, enlightenment or something. Uh, but it's going to be fun, kind of a Candyland style game. When, when Matt was down here recently, uh, we played a, a version of it just to see how it plays, working out the bugs. So it's in development right now. We're very close to getting it finalized. And very soon, we're going to make an announcement about uh, how you can get a hold of that. Of course, if you're one of our top tier supporters, you'll get that for free. And then if you're a, a, a supporter on the middle, middle or the lower uh, levels, you get discounts and things like that. But details like that will come soon. Uh, anyway, but if you haven't supported us, you still have a chance and you can help us continue to do this. We would like to be able to do the, to do the heretic happy hour podcast on a weekly basis. And, um, yes, wouldn't that be awesome? Yes. So if you want to help us do that, please go to the Patreon page and support us. Uh, every little bit really, really helps. And we appreciate it very, very much. Totally. And and, and if if I could jump Mm -hmm. in here, aren't we, we are trying, okay, so we did hit phase one, which was like, I think 400 a month, which may seem like, I don't know what what 400 seems like to you, but you know, with us, it's like, you know, when you break it down and after all the costs, all the expenses are paid and you break it down and, you know, dividing it between all of us, it's not a lot of money to live on. So, um, we are, we're still climbing, you know what I mean? We're still trying to, um, to, to 
to move forward. So that phase 400 was just phase one. And thank you guys for helping us with that. But we're still, we phase two is 800. I think that's right. We're trying to get to 800 bucks. Is that right? Am I, am I speaking correctly on that? Um, uh, I Sure. Why not? I, I think that's where I, I think I, I think so. That's I think I think when we talked about it, you know, if, if we can get to that, we can do we can justify the time that it that it takes to do a weekly podcast. And that would be absolutely amazing. Like that's that's an hour extra content a week yeah. that people are getting. Yeah. So, so and, and, that, and that's that is so doable, too, by the way, that's so easy to do because we've got we're getting we're averaging over a thousand downloads per episode. We have a thousand like a thousand people almost in the Facebook group. Uh if you break it down per person, that's not very much money to hit. No, it's like, know, yeah, five eight, bucks a month is about like eight, about yeah. 18, cents a, 18 cents a day or something like that. It's really minuscule. But again, it's if everyone just kind of does their part, we could we could really hit that goal very quickly. But um, yeah, so if you haven't got a chance to jump on Patreon, we'd love for you to do that. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Awesome. All right. Well, I think it's time for us to talk about... Uh, to talk to our special guest, the Heretic of the Week. It's the Heretic of the Week. Hi, I'm Sarah Bessie, and I'm a heretic. Hi, Hi Sarah. Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> welcome, welcome. I am happy to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. Oh, uh, yeah, this is really great. We were, uh, I, I was telling, uh, uh, we were talking before we hit record here that, you know, we have a lot of people on the Facebook group that when I mentioned that you were going to be the guest, we were going to interview you today, they were like, oh my gosh, she's my favorite. So um, you have a lot to live up to, some big shoes to fill here, uh, expectation-wise. Oh, well, as long as the pressure is not too high, thank you. (laughs) But no, seriously, we are really, really blessed to have you on. Thank you so much. And um, so we always want to, you know, as you are our heretic of the week, um, we always want to just ask the question, you know, what is it about, you know, what is it that you've done or or why is it that people uh, might think you are a heretic? Uh, I think it would probably depend on which corner of the Christian internet you roam <laughs> in. Um, I, I, you know, really, it's kind of a pick your poison sort of uh, question, probably. I think that the initial place where people um, began to consider me a heretic or began to consider me someone who was a deeply suspect um, was when my first book came out, which is called Jesus Feminist. And it was just like I had dropped this huge F-bomb in the middle of conversation. I think that things have changed a little bit, obviously, since that book came out in the last, you know, five years around the conversation regarding Christianity and feminism with evangelicalism. But at the time, it felt very electrifying and dangerous to do. And so anytime, you know, a good Christian lady who's a church lady wants to call herself a feminist, everybody clutches their pearls. That's for sure. (laughs) And uh, so that would probably be be the initial one. I think that, you know, since then, I probably piled on a, a few more uh, you know, reasons. I'm sure that there's people who think that it's impossible to be a Christian and not be an American. Mm-hmm. So that's another one. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hey, yeah, we could um, talk about that. yeah, we probably could. Uh, there's a, you know, I, th- I think probably a lot of my um, theology has shifted and changed over, over the years. And um, I ended up writing my second book about that process. And I remember just the backlash of me saying that I don't, that I love the Bible more now that I don't take it literally. And people just losing their minds, um, you know, about about that. And so, I mean, there's there's a number of different things I think I can pull across over the last, you know, five or ten years. But those are probably the big ones that jump out right right out of my my mind at first, probably, or the, the most that have um, caused a lot of uh, hand wringing blog posts <laughs> and accusations of being an evil leftist menace to the gospel. You yeah. Know? <laughs> well, I think we can all relate to 
everything you just said there, I think we we've all experienced those exact same reactions from people for pretty much saying the exact same thing as you're talking about, you know, that idea that the Bible isn't, the, the Bible wasn't, uh, you know, handwritten uh, by God, autographed and dropped out of heaven, uh, you know, on a platter for everybody. And, you know, it's not the, it's not the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible, uh, the, yes. the, the Trinity and all that. And as well, the political stuff, the entanglement and stuff. I wrote a book about that. And um, so, yeah, but we, and certainly the, the, the thing about Jesus being a feminist and I wanted you, if, could you maybe unpack that idea a little bit? I know what you mean, but when you use specifically the word feminist, um, that word in itself is kind of loaded, I think, for some people. So can you talk a little bit about what do you mean when you say Jesus is a feminist and um, uh, kind of unpack that idea a little bit? Right. Well, I, you know, it's when when I initially, um, you know, coined the phrase Jesus feminist, uh, I think that that was part of it is a lot of people assumed there was a comma in the middle there. And I was making this big, bold claim about how Jesus is a feminist. I do think that Jesus is yeah. a feminist in the truest and most core sense of the word um, being, you know, just simply a, a word that means equality. That means that there is, you know, full equality between, you know, men and women and mm-hmm having that there. And so I think that um, when the initial, you know, kind of conversation began, it it started because um, I noticed I got a very similar reaction in two different quarters. Um, I live in on the West coast of Canada. Um, At the time I was living in, in, uh, and, and working in the city. And um, when I would tell people that I was a Christian or when it happened to come up in conversation, there was kind of this, you know, drawing Mm -hmm. back and this sense of, well, what kind of Christian? What, what kind of? And I think that people had this stereotype of this idea in their mind that they had tricked out from you know American news media, which didn't do me a whole yep. lot of favors. And they would you know kind of look at me almost suspiciously, like I have this idea of what a Christian is like in my in my head or what I think that would look like, and yet you're not quite squaring up with what that is. And so then I would say, well, you know, it's because of, of Jesus. I follow Jesus. I I, I think that's that's kind of the the, the centerpiece for me in a lot of ways. And on the flip side, I would be in church environments or, um, you know, Christian environments. And I would say, well, I'm a feminist because, of course, I am. I had always grown up feeling very comfortable with the word feminist and uh, felt like it was a great descriptor. I didn't have a whole lot of baggage around it, maybe because I didn't grow up in the moral majority mm-hmm. conversation that I think a lot of Americans did. Um, and they would, you know, kind of take a step back and have the same reaction. You know, well, what kind of feminist are you? You know, they had a hard time squaring me standing there in front of them with what they had in their mind about stereotypes and ideas and what they believed to be so afraid of about someone who was, you know, using that label or that that title. And I mean, you know, I think there are limits, obviously, to the labels that we choose. And I think that feminists can be, you know, problematic and flawed in a lot of ways and isolated. Oftentimes, it's code for, you know, white feminism. And on the flip side, you know, Christian can be a really hard label for some people to embrace and understand without understanding you're taking on a lot of baggage around it or whatever else. And so they're imperfect, but that was how that the, they ended up coming together is I would just kind of laugh and say, oh, I'm a Jesus feminist. And it was kind of my way of kind of cheekily saying that it was because I followed Jesus um, that I became a feminist, that it wasn't in spite of Jesus, that it was actually because of Jesus that I had uh, ended up kind of, you know, creating this um, this path or finding, finding a path, I think for, for women within that conversation. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's awesome. Um, and, uh, Sarah, this is Jamal here and, uh, it's, it's really an honor to have you on. I've, uh, have uh, been an admirer of yours for, for several years and just, um, ex- so, so excited when I heard you're coming on our podcast. So, 
Um, but I wanted to, I have a question um, for you in the sense of, and this is more, uh, this is just a question I like to ask sometimes. And I've been, uh, it's kind of, you know, something I've been going through over the years. I think obviously if you come from a Christian background or have been to Bible college or, you know, trained and that kind of thing, you know, it's, you know, it's easy to kind of, for me at least, it's been easy to just have some assumptions. I think it's assumptions that we all are kind of given from the church system that we come from, but that God is male in the sense of always he is always referred to in the personal pronoun of he, um, you know, Jesus is a man. So when, when we talk about the incarnation, what is God like? We look at Jesus, but Jesus is a man. But obviously we know that humanity is male and female and God is expressed through both genders. And so for me, I've, um, it's just been a journey um, to understand God through the through the feminine lens, not just the masculine lens. But I just wanted to ask you, like, you know, I, I assume you, you come from a Christian background in the sense of, like, you know, traditionally um, growing up, and then, you know, obviously, I think in your work now, I, I mean, um, that you're you're predominantly talking to, I would say, probably the church at large. But when you think, like, in your own journey, I'm curious to know, like, wh- what is your understanding of, of maybe? the divine feminine do you when you when you in your own personal relationship with god do you view god as like mother do you do you ever use the personal pronoun she or how do, how does that work for you or what's been your process like in understanding god maybe from not just a male lens if that makes sense no i i think that's a that's an excellent question and that's actually been a a big part of probably my spiritual evolution in even the last 5 years since that uh, that book came out. Mm-hmm. Um, when I wrote Jesus Feminist, I very much understood that I was writing as a bridge, that I was wanting um, less to convince people in terms of like, it's not an academic book, right? It's not, I mean, anyone who's an academic has read it is like, <laughs> yes, we know. <laughs> you know Good it's point. Not an academic book. <laughs> yeah. And so it was never going to be the book that people turned to and said, you know, well, First Timothy 2 says this, and here's what, you know, and so there's some of that in there for sure. And that's, that's fantastic. But I use male pronouns. Which I love that, by the way. I love that. I think that's mm-hmm. so good. Thank you. And so I use male pronouns though in that book for God. And I did that as a very deliberate choice at the time because I, I knew yep. that I would lose people who were still very much in that place. And I wanted them to begin the movement. And so for me, it was a conscious choice to kind of meet people where they were. Um, and I don't know that I would make that same choice today, knowing and experiencing more the um, the fullness of God's image uh, as represented in women, and and even the frailty of our pronouns um, mm-hmm. that we have in the world right now. And so, I mean, you know, I guess you know you can look back, you know, and and in hindsight's twenty twenty, or at least you know a bit rueful. Um, but I think that that process of beginning to really understand the um, the masculine and the feminine of God, of beginning to embrace um, using feminine pronouns, um, has been a huge part of actually recovery for me for the last year. I had a major car accident about a year ago, and oh this has been where the feminine pronoun for God has become literally a lifeline for me, because I needed I needed that. I needed the uh, the mothering image of God wow. needed to be mother. Wow, that's beautiful. And so for me, whenever I would be hard on myself or whenever I was in pain or whenever I was struggling or whether it was mental or physical or emotional or spiritual, I would literally think in my mind, what would a strong and patient and wise and kind and deeply loving mm-hmm. mother say to me wow. right now? 
That's so beautiful. And that became almost a place of um, of worship, of, of how I was reading scripture, of how I was encountering the Holy Spirit. You know, which probably goes back to your first question, because that's another reason why a lot of people consider me a heretic, is I'm deeply charismatic um, in my expression. And I'm like, if it's mystical and woo-woo, I am here for it. Like, there's not even any, I'm not here, I have like zero chill when it comes to the Holy Spirit. And so, even that aspect of it, I mean, I switch to using feminine pronouns when I'm talking specifically about the Holy Spirit, uh, because of what I learned from, you know, studying uh, original languages and how even the mm. church had kind of under- always, you know, understood this, um, you know, force or, or energy or, or person, um, you know, that had been there. But honestly, one of the most worshipful experiences of my life happened right before my accident. Um, I was at a women's retreat and a woman got up and shared about how she was struggling with the patriarchal, you know, um, feel that often pervades Christianity, whether it is, you know, the 12 disciples are are all men and we always kind of exclude the women who are disciples or like you were saying, the pronouns of using he and father exclusively for God, Um, Mm -hmm. somehow, you know, thinking that God's a boy's name, Mm -hmm. you know, is what one, one writer says. And she got up and she began to sing. She's got the whole world in her hands. I love it. And it was just like the room broke open. Like people were weeping. And it was just all of a sudden that tenderness of that maternal anointing just really swept through the room. And I mean, it was one of the most beautiful and worshipful things I've ever Mm -hmm. seen is just women weeping at the thought that God Mm -hmm. could share their pronouns. Um, that that's a way it. to connect with the Holy Spirit. And so it's been a huge part of my own spiritual formation, I think, in particular, probably the last year, very intensely, but really over over a while now. I think it's something that we're missing, right? We're missing something when we think that, yeah. that God's only, um, the expression of masculinity are only found in what we would consider masculine traits or, um, you know, uh, a place like it just, we, we miss the full image of God and then we miss the formation of how that can shift and change us um, and how we yes. are healed even by that. I think that that's part of reconciliation is reconciling yeah. the masculine and the feminine. Yes. That's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. Well, and I'm curious also, and I love that. That is, um, I completely agree. And I, I'm just curious. I mean, you're married, yeah. right? Long um, time. And you have, <laughs> yeah. How how long have you been married? Uh, 17 years. Been together for 20. Wow. Okay. I'm just curious. um, And again, you know, uh, how how this journey um, with you, you know, just of understanding God, obviously, as uh, from the more of a maternal aspect and also understanding the validity. (laughs) I mean, I hate that even we we even have to, you know, emphasize that, but it it is where humanity is coming from, like, of, of just bringing the genders back in proper flow with each other and union with each other. How, how, how has that affected um, just your journey in, in your relationship with, with your spouse? Um, you know, that's a, that's a good question. I don't think I've ever been asked that question or really thought about it before. Um, you know, my husband and I um, have been together for a long time and we have often joked that we have been married to several different people during yeah. that time because we have changed yeah. He's had like probably four different wives, right. even though I'm the only one who's been here. Like, just, and I could probably say the same thing about him. Like, we both have had really significant, you know, spiritual evolutions, but even vocational um, evolutions, identity, you know, changes and shifts. And so, I think part of our um, our heart for people, even who are deconstructing, is learning how to deconstruct differently and yet well together. 
you know, like our yes. paths were That's not so identical. Good. They did, we didn't, we were not a mirror image. We were not keeping pace all the time with each other. And yet our marriage always was, was thriving and, um, and strong. Not because we were perfect and not because we did it right all the time, but because we wanted each other more than we wanted the certainty and more than we wanted to be right and more than we wanted any of those things. And so being able to have this aspect of awakening that has happened in me um, has also been an an awakening, I think, for Brian, uh, for my husband, because I I think that... um, there's so many different way- things that we experience in our lives that will open us up to a new um, image or, or, or metaphor or even just a glimpse of what God is and, and how, how this works and how this feels. And for some people, it can happen in a million different ways. But because, you know, I have this, this life and this particular, you know, experience, for us, the experience of becoming parents together was deeply transformative for how we viewed the love mm-hmm. of God and how we viewed the welcome of God. I mean, I think that one of the things that really shifted my husband's view of really seeing the uh, feminine side of God was honestly seeing me mm. give birth and nurse our children. I mean, it was deeply transformative for him. Um, he always says that the most favorite side of his life mm-hmm. is when we would have babies right between us in our bed, and I'd be nursing mm-hmm. them, and we'd both be like almost half asleep. And just that sense of so, just seeing the, and I mean, it just brings so much of scripture alive to you again. He's like, you know, you look at these passages um, that talk about how my soul is like a nursed child. And you just all of a sudden are mm-hmm. looking at this baby who's satisfied and full and, and, and at rest and at peace in every capacity. Like they're almost just like milk drunk. And he's like, that's what that's what this could look like. And that's an incredible picture of wow. the nurture and goodness of God. And you, he would have missed that if it was yeah. always like God's a boy. Yes. <laughs> you know? oh, yeah. Absolutely. That's so good. Oh, I love that picture. And that, I think that's so true. I, I had a very similar experience when, uh, when my boys were first born. I mean, it's such a transformative thing. Uh, and you're right. It does, it does change the way you think about God and the way, even the way you think about God thinks about you. You know, it's, it's right. a really beautiful thing. Well, and, you know, and I always feel like I want to put a little bit of a caveat on that because right. I know not everybody has that experience either with their parent or with even themselves as a parent. And I don't think that, you know, my way is the only way or it's the only way to experience God or, or that it's the only way to fully understand the unconditional <laughs> love of God by any stretch. I think there's a lot of room for nuance within that conversation. It's more than yeah. that's, that's been our experience in our Well, you know, and you touched on something, and I'm so glad you did. This uh, It's such an important thing to, to bring up. The fact, the fact that our views of Jesus and of God— you said earlier, you know, that you believe um, in feminism because of Jesus, right? And so I, I think it's so important that, you know, to realize, I think many of us, we probably all have this experience, we realize that our views of God or our views of Jesus were really created more out of our culture or our theology or our denomination than by who God actually is or who Jesus actually is. Like when you actually read the scriptures and you actually spend time with him, um, then you start to realize who he really is. And you realize that those two things aren't the same. And so this, this deconstruction process is so critical and so key. Um, so can you talk a little bit about your own deconstruction process? I know you touched on this already a little bit, but I'd be also curious to hear um, you know, your, your personal deconstruction process and what that was like and maybe what, what the catalyst was to kind of get this moving for you and maybe some of the things that were the most difficult for you as far as the way people reacted. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Um, sure. Uh, just a, a little bit. I probably have like all the words <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, on, on that topic. You know, um, 
deconstruction for me began probably years before I acknowledged it. And I think that there's a long route um, or a very deep route to a lot of our deconstruction and the long lead up more than probably we realize. And so for me, I did grow up, uh, my parents were first generation Christians. Um, we did not live or uh, have a family context or an extended family or even a, a local context that was um, what I would describe as, uh, it would probably be what most people would now consider um, like mm-hmm. post-Christian, right? It was my great-grandparents, you know, kind of generation were the last ones to really be in church. And so when my parents became Christians, it just really turned our whole lives upside down. It just was everything to us. We did not know what we did not know. We just believed everything we were given. We were so excited. I remember I tell this story sometimes about my dad, how he struggled with insomnia his entire life, um, had never really had a, had a very good night's sleep ever. And one time he was reading his Bible and he came across this line that's in the Psalms that said, the Lord gives his beloved sleep. Mm. And he like slammed his Bible shut and he ran to my mom and he's like, did you see this? Because we're Christians now, we get to sleep well. Wow. (laughs) And he went to bed like clapped all night long. Like I have no answers for these things. Mm. (laughs) Sometimes Mm. our innocence and our naivete, we just kind of, you know, meet something right in the midst of, of all of it. And so, for me, um, deconstruction really began, um, you know, probably like a lot of people in my 20s. Um, my, my husband was a pastor. And at the time we were living in um, in uh, in South Texas. And I was, I had just thousands of things that were just right under the surface. I mean, the women and feminism, but also justice and about war and about scripture and about the church and about how, um, you know, the politics and how this was represented and what if we were missing it. And I mean, in a, in a million different ways, I had this thicket of questions that was always there, but it felt kind of like, um, you know, how in cartoons, how like kids will be told to clean up their room and then they shove everything into the closet and then they like barely get the door closed. Yep because everything's just like straining at the door and wanting to tumble right out. That's a hundred percent how I felt like my Christianity was for almost most of my twenties was me just keep like shoving doubts and questions and I'm fine. It's totally fine. There's nothing to see here, you know, just shoving them all in there and then keep trying to strain to keep the door closed. Uh, The thing that popped the door open and buried me was grief. Hmm. Um, I think that a lot of people find that grief is often their catalyst for um, launching into the wilderness or launching into a liminal space, or at least being willing to cross the threshold of that closet and say, I need to make friends with my monsters. Yes. Um, Yes. And so so for me, my husband and I had lost a number of babies before birth. I have, we have four children now, but I've been pregnant eight times Hmm. and it was devastating. And I did not feel like there was a room in church for my grief. I did not feel that in the shiny, happy, Jesus-y, here's your formula for getting your prayers answered narrative of certainty that there was room for people like me who were part of the company of unanswered prayers. What do you do when the formulas don't work? What do you do when it doesn't add up? What do you do when you can't sing all these songs and you can't worship like this? And in fact, this feels like damage. And so that was kind of a launch for me. I mean, it was obviously tied up with a lot of other things, you know, around the church growth movement and the mega church movement. And I mean, a lot of things were kind of all connecting all at the same time. And that was really the launching point for me. I, I mean, I left church for probably six or seven years, did not even hardly go. And if I went, I felt like I had almost, you know, 
trauma <laughs> from the experience. Yes. Just did not yes. know how. I thought I was done. I thought I would never go back to church. I thought I was kind of loved Jesus, but really yeah. struggled with church and with church people, yep. with the expression of Christianity. And meanwhile, my husband, of course, is studying to be a pastor and is kind of like going, you know, very on a very different path than I am to reconciling some of these things. And so, yeah, that, that process of, of deconstruction was a painful one. And yet I think it was very unavoidable. And there was the, the biggest thing that I, I think about deconstruction is that we fight it when we are meant to embrace it, yes. that we often per- perceive it as um, a slippery slope or something that is dangerous. And instead, one of the deepest core beliefs I have is that that uh, opening that door and making friends with your your questions or your monsters or however you want to call that that that's actually an invitation from the holy spirit yeah. that it is it is entirely normal and right and good for you to to deconstruct and to have these questions and to pay yeah. attention to them i do not think that there's any part of god that would require you to be intellectually or spiritually dishonest um, and so being able to evolve, to lean into those questions, to lean into your pain, uh, believing that there will be deliverance or at least reconciliation or, or cu- to honor your doubt and your curiosity and even your hunger. Mm-hmm. I think that there, there is a lot of invitation there that we have mistaken as something dangerous when it, yes, it might be dangerous in the sense of you won't be put back together the way you were before. But there's so much freedom and goodness and life and wholeness on the other side of that that you would miss if you tried to stay in a cardboard cutout version of what you think a Christian looks like. Yeah, yeah. That's so good. That's so good. Well, Sarah, I I wanted to ask you um, when you think of when you think of the future, or you think of you know just what's unfolding, what you see unfolding. What gives you the most hope? What are you the most hopeful about when you think of the future, what, or what you see in breaking, and how does that connect to your the work that you're doing? Like, what are you the most excited about moving forward in your work, and how does that connect to the larger hope of what you see happening in the future? That's a great question. Um, I love. I there's, I feel like there's almost um, a forest of light that exists there when it comes to hope. Like it's just, I remember reading one time in Walter Bergman's um, work, I want to say it was in the prophetic imagination, but I'm not hundred percent sure. So don't quote me on that. But he talked about how you, you don't get to have hope unless you've grieved. Mm, wow. And that they have to come together. And that deeply struck me. And yes. I have never forgotten it. I think of, of oftentimes as, as Christians, as people who can hold both hope and grief in the same hands. And that's part of the reason why I turned so much towards Jesus during that process of deconstruction is saying, I don't understand about scripture. I don't understand about this. I don't understand about church. I don't understand about politics. I don't understand about you know these opinions on sexuality or this or that or whatever. But Jesus makes sense to me because I think he embodies, like we were talking earlier, the masculine and the feminine, the light and the dark, mm-hmm. the grief and the hope, the um, the pain and also the rising. And mm-hmm. so having that fullness for me, I think, has been a, a big part of that hope. I have so much hope for what is happening in uh, in the church. I see ho- so much hope for what is happening outside the church. I think one of the, the biggest places where I find hope is in the margins right now, mm-hmm. the people who you know, are not often invited to the table or who are making up their own tables, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> there in the wilderness, the ones that oftentimes um, are, you know, slandered or misunderstood. Um, I mean, I just, I remember being at this uh, one 
uh, gathering. It was uh, actually up here in the, on the West Coast, and it was for an organization called Generous Space, which um, provides spiritual care information for GLBTQ plus Christians. And being in the room when everybody was worshiping, and it was like their parents were there and their children, and everybody would just had this beautiful spirit of unity and goodness, and we're out in the middle of the woods and just listening to these people whom a lot of churches yep. would not want or who would judge or who would leave out or would consider them less than or sinful or broken, um, which is a horrible word yeah. to use about a, a person. And hearing them just worship with such purity of heart and such hope and such goodness and such determination. I mean, to me, that's, that's grief and hope altogether, right? That, that's, that's what that looks like. Why would you even need to light a candle if you did not acknowledge it was dark? Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, what hope is, right? It's acknowledging the dark and lighting a candle anyway. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's beautiful. That is so beautiful. What are, what are some projects you're working on? Uh, what, what's uh, upcoming with you and your work? Oh, well, I'm working on a new book. Um, so one of these years, it'll be out, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can you tell us what it's about? Yeah. You know, I'm not 100% sure yet. I think I'm going to be writing huh? a little bit about um, this last year with my uh, car accident and the recovery and some of the, hmm. the ways that God has met me during this process of healing yeah. um, is, I think, I'm really interested in exploring. I'm not sure 100% how that'll come together, mm-hmm. um, but we'll see. And other than that, just kind of um, usual work I do. I work um, with a couple of nonprofits and just life and all that kind of fun stuff, raising my kids and just trying to, as best as I can, you know, scrabble after wherever Jesus is going. That's all I ever mm-hmm. want to do anyway. That's so rich. And yeah, this has been so good. Really have enjoyed your you. your heart and just um, and just your journey. It's uh, It's beautiful how even though you're one person, um, your, your life in the, and what's unfolding in you and through you is affecting so many people. And, um, really, really just, I'm thankful for you, thankful for your journey, your life and, um, and just how the divine is expressed through you. It's very, it's, um, it's very encouraging. And, uh, how can people get a hold of you or, or, or to find out more about your work? What, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, probably the best spot is just to head over to sarahbessie.com. That's got the links for everything from my Facebook page to my Instagram. I'm actually taking a bit of a break right now from Twitter, but normally I'm on Twitter. Um, mm-hmm. And that's my blog. That's my speaking engagements. I'm doing, I do a lot of speaking in the spring and in the fall. And so all of those uh, schedules will all be up there as well. And so everything would be, would be all, I feel a little bit ripped off. You promised me swear words and I have had I'm no sorry. swear words. And so I'm, I feel deeply fat. <laughs> <laughs> our, our our swear the the host usually drops all the all the swear words. He's he couldn't make the interview today, so <laughs> but, that is a that yeah. is a damn shame. That's what that is. <laughs> there we go. But if you if you listen to the full episode, I'm sure you'll hear. Oh, you hear plenty of that. Yes, <laughs> I was going to say you uh, at the beginning we talked about um, the expectation that was set by uh, by people in the Facebook group about uh, having you on, and I, I got to say uh, you didn't live up to it. You blew it away and exceeded it. And I'm I'm like. Why didn't we have you on a long time ago? This was so, so good. Sarah. No, thank, thank you, you so much. I really appreciate that. Thank you for such a generous conversation and just a blessing to you guys and everybody in the Facebook group. Uh, just so glad you guys are hosting these conversations and inspiring such such good talks for everybody. I'm, I just love it when people can lean into these these places. So I'm glad. Yeah. All right. Thanks thank so you. much. All right. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Thanks, sir. Wow, guys, that was that was really cool. And uh, obviously, I couldn't be there for that one, but um, I really. I, I'm not familiar with Sarah's work and um, she, that was a wonderful interview. Um, one thing that stuck out to me 
was when she wrote that book and, and she was um, using the pronoun he for God and speaking to the people not to turn them off. And that's something that I struggle with. Like, I just, I'm going to speak like how I'm going to speak. And it's always nice to be reminded, like, you know, if you're going to turn people off with your language, sometimes you do have to evaluate the things you're saying. And for some people, it is too much. Like, like she would rather compromise and get people to hear the overall message rather than, you know, like you, she at, for God, maybe she'd change now. But back then, I mean, I, I actually, that stuck out to me as like a, a highlight of the, um, of the talk. I don't know about you guys. No, I love that. I mean, I think obviously there's, there's some strategy involved as sort of when you're writing a blog or even on our podcast, right. you know, communicating to people. Right. Um, do you want to reach more people and therefore you kind of change the way you communicate to, to reach more people? Or do you just say, screw it. This is who I am. Love it or love right. it or leave it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I just appreciated her stance. It's not one I often take. Like I, I say, that. fuck, and I say, I say, <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that, and yeah. it's like, yeah. If I turn people off, I turn people off. But well, I don't give a shit. But I, so I love, I love hearing that other side and say, yeah, I, I respect, the, I respect the hell out of that. So fascinating. Um, but I just, I also think that, like her overall interview, like really goes, I think, well with our topic, and it's actually, we're gonna, I think, give the stage. It's, it's Jamal's turn. Right, we're gonna. We, Jamal loves Mary Magdalene, loves to talk about Mary Magdalene, and we're finally gonna give Mary Magdalene an episode, and um, and which I'm excited about because honestly, like I've never studied her life. I I've never. It's never been like a fascination of mine until we started doing this podcast, and you know, it, it turned into like the in-house joke that we kind of beat the dead horse with, but um, <laughs> as we like to do on the show, uh, but I've I've really liked looking at her life and studying and pre preparing for this podcast because it was like, oh, I, I guess I've just never thought it that important to study her life. Is that because right. I'm a mis misogynist or something? But yeah, I, <laughs> I, don't, so. I don't mean to be, it's just, I've never, I've just <laughs> never take, I mean, I've never done it. So um, I don't know where you guys want to jump off with this, but I'm excited to to talk about Mary Magdalene. I think she's a very compelling figure. She's obviously very important. I mean, she's mentioned in all the Gospels, all the four canonical Gospels, right? Um, she's she's there at Jesus' big event. She's uh, she's at the death, the burial, and the resurrection. Well, the burial, I think, not in John's Gospel, if I'm correct, but in the Synoptics. Um, she's the first that the risen Jesus you know, reveals himself to. So she is very important. And, and she's also very important in the Gnostic writings. So um, I don't know where you guys want to kick it off on this, but uh, I think she has gotten a bad rap over the years. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. So Jamal, do you want to, you want to kick us off? This is like we said, this is kind of your, this, this is, is your, this is your topic. deal, man. This is it. Yeah. You know, just give us some time to jump in. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, <laughs> well, first of all, I just, <laughs> first let me just say i really appreciate you guys do like like i feel like you've really been gracious to me i mean obviously i'm very passionate about mary magdalene and i really i feel like she has not gotten i don't think you can read the bible and really know much about her um i think right um i mean she, obviously you can get the picture that she's extremely important and probably one of the closest people in Jesus' life, just from reading what we have in the Synoptic Gospels, which I actually think um, do a great job of silencing her. Um, I don't. I think it's. Um, 
I, I don't think it, these are accurate description. I mean, I think it's like filters, you know? Um, so I'm, I, I feel like, and then every time, like throughout history, there has been, from my understanding, um, attempts to quiet the conversation about her role and the message that she proclaimed. And even, even this latest incident with the movie, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of a bummer. There was this movie coming out, um, that's now like on hold, um, because of the whole Weinstein, Weinstein, Harry Weinstein thing, you know, where he owned this, this uh, production company. Was it Harvey? Yeah. So like, yeah, just it kind of, it's kind of a bummer that, now that that movie was coming out, you know, it's just like, it just, th- this is kind of a snapshot of what's happened throughout history. It's like, um, so I think it's really cool that we get to do an ep- an entire episode about this woman. I think that really, it just, I don't know, it just really, it speaks a lot to me and it encourages me because I'm very passionate about it. So thank you guys for being willing to have this conversation. Oh no, I, um, so what, how do you, when you say you think that she's been silenced, what do you mean by that? Can you unpack that? Well, I, yeah, I want to unpack it. Um, but let me, let me back up a little bit if I could, and you guys can obviously, you know, jump in where, where you want. But like, I, I, I feel like personally, I'm not, I didn't start off by wanting to be passionate about Mary Magdalene. Like that wasn't like something I set out to do. Um, a lot of people, when they hear about Mary and obviously we don't know much about her, um, people obviously go to what is quote unquote, and I'm using this, um, it's, it's quote air quotes, uh, the, the Gnostic gospel of Mary Magdalene, I'm Gnostic meaning quotes. Cause I, I don't like that term, but, um, I feel like that's where people want to go and they want to say, well, how, here's what we know about Mary. And they go to these writings, you know, uh, the, 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 the quote unquote Gnostic gospels. And I, again, that's not where I've been, and that's not why I'm passionate about Mary. I, I think it. I think that those have a role and they have a place in the conversation about Mary Magdalene. Those writings do. Uh, they can be very interesting, um, which I think maybe we'll, we'll talk about as we go on. But um, for me personally, my connection to Mary Magdalene has nothing to do with those writings. So, okay, can I, Jamal? Can I ask you a real yeah, question, real quick? For sure. So, have you? Uh, so, I get that you're you. Uh, the Gnostic Gospels, like the, the Gospel of Mary, Thomas, Philip, uh, you know th- those Gospels, which do mention Mary uh, and other mm-hmm. what we call "quote unquote" Gnostic Gospels. So that isn't the way you sort of got to her. But have you since have you read those uh, to see what they say about her? And yes, do you yes, see yes. there's any value in those? Oh, totally. I, I totally do. Um, yeah, I since have gotten into those and looked into them, but it's not really. Like I wouldn't direct people there if they and people said I would really like to know more about Mary Magdalene. You know, I, I don't I don't know that they're they're necessary. Um, they're interesting, um, but mm-hmm. but to me, like my connection with Mary is is not rooted in, in any of that. Um, we'll talk about that. Yeah, you got to unpack that. Okay. Well, let me unpack that. So, and, and I have to going back a few years. You know, probably five, six, seven years. I, I don't know. I lost track. I started, and I think I kind of maybe touched on this in our interview with Sarah Bessie. But I started to have these experiences in myself, um, and particularly in 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 the context of relationships. And what I started to notice was there was this quality about I was interacting with this love that was coming I was coming awake to internally, and I, I started to notice that it seemed very nurturing and feminine and motherly, and it was in me. But I but I possessed it like it was mine, and I started to like interact. In a very like it, it was kind of it was totally weird. It was so one part of me it was very natural, but my mind started to analyze it and go, "That is really strange." Because I'm a guy, 
and I'm not, you know, I'm, <laughs> I, I feel like I'm, I'm not an, you know, again, this is not a knock and pe- people who are, but I'm, I don't feel like I'm an effeminate guy. I feel like I have, you know, I, I really, I have the same drives and the same kind of uh, testosterone and all this, everything that males do. I, I totally connect with all that. So this was kind of strange to me when I started to really feel um, and connect to the feminine essence. And especially in the way that I was relating to specific people, it I felt literally like a mother. And I started to be fascinated with this idea of motherhood. And I would talk to a lot of, a lot of women that I were, I was friends with that were pregnant and were getting ready to have children. And I would ask them about what was awakening within them with motherhood and everything they would describe was like, Oh my gosh, this is exactly what's happening within me. It was like, they were putting words to what I was experiencing. And it, I thought I was crazy. I felt crazy. Literally felt like this is, I started talking to certain people that I felt like I could trust that would, you know, just, obviously not governed by fundamentalists. I still was still coming out of some evangelical thinking in, in, in areas. So like I was talking to people and they said, you know, this guy, this, he's, he's since passed away, but he, he told me, he said, you know, like the God that you, the divine essence that really is, you know, wedded with your spirit and really that's you are one with is just as much woman as man. And he was like, I tell women that you have a man in you. And he goes, I would tell you that you have a woman in you, you know? And like, like, and obviously not in the gendered, physical gendered sense, but like we all, we all have this masculine and feminine energy in us. And I started to really come awake to this feminine, divine feminine energy that was my own. And I, and I, I think we did an interview with the naked pastor with um, David Hayward. And he talked about that. Like he, he kind of writes about this and uh, the wisdom of Sophia. And like, he kind of has personified this this essence that he is, who, which is him. He's like, it's another part of him, but it's obviously related and connected to the divine feminine. So that was the first step for me. And I, and I connected and it was really like, so I had specific, I had like, like people could connect with that and say that was very motherly. So I was like literally in like feeling very motherly and nurturing in, in some of, in some of the ways I would love people, which was so weird. Um, anyway, so, so that's the first step. Um, but I would tell like, to not drag this out because it could, it could, you know, there's a lot of experiences along the way. But <laughs> about a year ago, where where Mary Magdalene fits into this for me. So about a year ago, I was uh, in northern Spain and um, t- doing this pilgrimage. It's called the, the Camino, El Camino. If anybody wants, wants to watch a movie about it, you can. It's called The Way. Mark Sheen's in it. It's an awesome movie. Emilio Estevez. Great movie um, about the Camino. But it's a pilgrimage. It's a very ancient um, pilgrimage that people have been doing for thousands of years. Um, the, the it's it's christianized now and it's called the way of saint james and it's predominantly a roman catholic um pilgrimage but it starts in southwest france one of the main routes does it starts in southwest france on the corner right near the border of spain and it cuts across northern spain about a 500 mile journey and i did it last year i did this pilgrimage something i've been wanting to do for a long time so i did it so i brought a couple i brought a book with me and uh, it was a, f- a book from that a friend gave me and i felt like when I was thinking about you know, my, 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 everything, I, I literally had for almost a couple of months, I literally had everything in a, in a bag. So I had to be very careful about what I bring. So I uh, wasn't going to bring a lot of books. So I brought a couple of books and I brought this one specific book that my friend gave me uh, to read. And um, I didn't know much about the book. I just knew it just felt like, yeah, I should bring this. And it was a fiction book. It was a novel. And I was like, yeah, let me bring it. So anyway, that just keep that in mind. So I go on the Camino and I'm, Short, I'm like a few days into it, you know, coming from France, crossing into Spain. And 
after, you know, I don't know, it was a week or two I, in, in between the first couple of weeks of this thing. And I'm every little village and you go through these really old ancient towns and these old ancient cathedrals. And, um, I remember just really having a very difficult time. Like when you, when people do the Camino and a lot of times just there's a spiritual energy there that's different. People talk about it, but whatever you're dealing with, like whatever, you know, if there's pain in your life, if there's stuff that's lodged really deep that you need to process, um, it'll come to the surface when you're, because literally you're walking 15 miles a day. I mean, literally 10 hours a day, you're just walking. You have time with yourself. Like you don't back home, things come to the surface. And I remember just really feeling really just, just moved in my spirit and a lot of anguish, a lot of pain. I was processing. So I was sitting in this cathedral, um, just the space was, it was a lot of solitude and it was quiet. And I was just literally, I was in tears. I was pouring my heart out, um, really feeling the, what I was feeling. And I heard this voice it was very clear and it wasn't audible, but it was internal. But I, I've, I've obviously under, I recognize the voice <clears throat> to be, uh, God's voice. Um, again, we all know what that it's really our voice, but it's the deep, it's, it comes from the deep essence of our being. And I heard that voice and it was like, look up right now. And it just snapped me out of this anguish I was in. I looked up and there was, as in most Catholic cathedrals, you'll see a cross. Obviously, the the cross where Jesus is on the cross. And then there's that, you know, two women at the foot of the cross. And um, it was kind of, it was like hanging from the ceiling. It was like this portrayal of the crucifixion. And there are two women, obviously, one of them, uh, one is Mary. To the left was Mary, the mother of Jesus. And then the other woman was Mary Magdalene, which is often, she's often pictured there at the foot of the cross with Jesus as he's dying, you know? So I looked up and my eyes fixated on the woman to the right of the cross, which was Mary Magdalene. And it, I just literally, she's the first thing I saw. And I heard so clearly in the, in the depths of my being was, you need to look at her, like, look at her. She is now your teacher. Like you will learn from her. Your anguish is her anguish. Like she, your her journey is your journey in many ways, and, and and I didn't understand any of what that meant, but I knew this Camino, this journey is going to be about Mary in some way. I just, it's just a knowing, something you just know, and it, I had no grid for that. I was like, wow, that's crazy. So I started that just shifted my like thinking, and I was like, wow. So uh, what does it mean to look to Mary as my teacher? I have no idea what that means, but I knew that this was coming from beyond. It was a transcendent kind of a unction or however you want to put that. But so I started reading this book right after that. So this book that I had brought with me, this novel was about Mary Magdalene <laughs> and it was about, it was a fictional book written by somebody who was um, supposed a, a reporter who had um, found out that she was related you know, way back in the bloodline of Mary Magdalene. And this is a fictional book. This is the story of the book though. And so this lady is like, is like being directed. She feels like divinely directed to find all these clues. And so she ends up her, her investigative, she's an investigative reporter. She's investigating what happened to Mary. You know, she's doing this, these investigative series on like prominent women throughout history. And so Mary is somebody she's always been interested in. So anyway, she starts to do this investigative journey about Mary. And so it led her to Southwest France which is exactly where I was. And, and then a cor- a cor- and then in some of the villages, like right in this area, the Pyrenees and, and, and all this, this is exactly where I was at the time. And I had no idea, knew, knew any of that, didn't know any of that before I went. So I'm like, I'm like, holy crap, I'm reading this book that I felt directed to read. I had to hear this message in this cathedral. And now the book I'm reading is about, it's literally about 
Mary's journey. So the book, the reason that it, the setting is Southwest France, the Pyrenees, is because historically, according to a lot of different information, apparently Mary made her way to, to with one of the other disciples and settled in Southwest France in the in the Pyrenees area and then on the Languedoc region and had an entire vibrant ministry there. And people groups had traced their lineage back um, to her. So I didn't know any of this. I have never read any of that. That was all news to me. And so I was like, is that really true? So I started reading this book was riveting. And I was like, what are the odds I would bring this book with me? And that's exactly where I am. I'm actually in this region. And then every, I would go through these little towns and there would be, I would hear about the Knights Templar and there would be like these, there would be these local ceremonies to honor the Knights Templar, which I had knew nothing about. And of course, in the book I'm reading, it talks about the Knights Templar. I know it sounds like Dan Brown novels, all that kind of thing, but like literally I'm like uncovering it. So I start, I start asking questions like, what is this all about? And anyway, I started finding out all this history, like literal, real history, not, not just fictional stuff, but real history on the ground. Like the Knights Templar were killed by the Pope's army. And there were these group, there was this group of people in Southwest France called the Cathars that were murdered. It was probably the greatest Holocaust on European soil other than the, the Jewish Holocaust in, in, the, in World War II. Other than that, this one was the, the second greatest Holocaust. And it was you know, men, women, children slaughtered, murdered by, by papal armies. And these were groups that uh, traced their lineage to Mary Magdalene. And, that, so, and then I later found out that the Camino I was on, before it became known as the Way of St. James, after that area had been Romanized by Constantine in the fourth century, um, that this entire journey I was on, the Camino, was called the Way of Mary Magdalene early in Christian history in the first couple centuries. And these there were these little churches along the way that had statues devoted to Mary Magdalene. And, they, and, and it was a dark woman with a child, and they called her the Black Madonna. So I started to realize, started finding out that all the terms that are typically used for Mary, the mother of Jesus in the Catholic religion, like Our Lady, uh, Madonna, all these things, these were first used, according to these groups of people in this area, these were first used for Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was called Our Lady. She was called the Madonna. Um, pictures of her with a the child. These were all prominent. These statues, some of them still exist to this very day. The Catholic Church rounded up most of them and tried to confiscate them, but there's some that still exist, and I saw some of them. I was uncovering all of this personally. And then, you know, I don't want to go into all the details about how that related to me personally, but like it I would like literally have communion and, and like in times of prayer, you know, like people talk about hearing the voice of God. I would literally felt to me, it was like I was hearing from Mary, Mary Magdalene in these dialogues I would have as I would walk this Camino. It's really hard to put into words, but one story I'll give to you. And then I, I started to, every time I would question myself, I'd say, is this really real? Am I like in the twilight zone or something. Just so new to me. One day I was at this cafe and I was sitting there by myself waiting for my walking partner to come. And um, I was just sitting there and I was uh, reading my book, that book about Mary Magdalene, this fictional book. And um, I just heard an internal dialogue. I felt like a prayer started happening. I was talking to God and I felt like God, what I heard was uh, the, the table across from you, there's a guy sitting there and um I want you to look at his book, the cover of his book. I mean, that's what I heard. I was like, oh, that's crazy, you know? So I'm like, wait, I'm like, and this guy was sitting there. He's like got three or four kids and, you know, and and um, I couldn't see what his book was. And so anyway, I waited till he put the book down. And then like, I, I just, I, I, I couldn't see it. So I just put my phone out and I snapped a picture uh, of his cover so I could, and then I looked at it and I was like, it said Madeline. That was the name of the book he was reading. It was the cover and cover. And I was like, okay, I don't know what's that about? 
And then I had the sense, like, look up Madeline, look up the meaning of Madeline. So I looked it up. I went on the internet. I looked up Madeline and it's a French word. I knew it was French, but it was a French name. A lot of French girls are named Madeline or, you know, it's like a typical French name. But um, when I looked it up, it kind of gave the history of that name. I said, well, the name comes, the name means one from Magdala. And the reason that it's popular in France is because, you know, Mary supposedly came and settled in France and has a vibrant ministry. And that's why there are many churches that are, you know, devoted to Mary Magdalene in France. A lot of women, a lot of girls' names are Mag, uh, are Madeleine because of the connection that she has to France. Um, and I was like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. And I'm like, so th- that, and so then like I started reading, so I picked my book up and I'm like, this is freaky. So I picked my book back up and started reading again. I turned the page and literally they start going in the book, the dialogue amongst the characters in the book said, let me tell you, do you know, you ever wonder why the name Madeline is so popular in France? Well, it's because, you know, bubble, and it literally j- just states the very thing I had just looked up on the internet. And like these little things would happen along the way in such a way that it would show me, yeah, you're on the right path. And even on a personal basis, I started to really feel like I had communion with her. And then I, and then that led me to look into the history Oh yeah, she was. She came to to this region. Uh, there were people that quote unquote believed that Mary Magdalene, you know, was the the rightful kind of leader of the apostles after post resurrection, and that she was silenced. And then, of course, when the when the the Roman Catholic Church became, you know, post fourth century, and they started to shut down all these different groups because apparently Mary Magdalene settled in Egypt first after the resurrection and then made her way to Europe, made her way to modern day France and Spain and that area and spread, you know, her message. And a lot of those groups, you know, still are there and can trace their lineage back. But the Catholic church has really done a great job of suppressing that information. And I started to look into that more and more later, but that's how I got into it initially. It was through a personal connection, if that makes sense. So there's a lot there. No, I know that a a lot of, (laughs) this really is the Jamal show. We, we, yes, we it is. Line. Jamal, <laughs> like you said a lot of interesting things. Um, what, but what is the name of the book you were reading? Yes, we're trying to guess. You know, I really, I, okay, I'm going to, I will, if anybody wants to know the name of this book, um, contact me personally. Send me a message, Facebook, you know, whatever. You're not going to tell us? Um, send You're me not going to No, I'm not going to put it, I'm not going to put it out on the air. I'll tell you guys later off the air because the reason I don't want to do that, the reason I don't want to put it out there, not because, because people, te- for me, I don't think, I think if you want to look, like if you want to read the, the, the quote unquote Gnostic gospels to find more about Mary, you're not going to know them very much. Um, there's the, the, the gospel of Mary Magdalene is missing the first six pages. Yep. It's, kind of hard to understand. Um, it, it, it stopped. It was widely translated up until about the fifth century, fifth, sixth century. And then it, and then it was, you know, mysteriously not translated anymore. I think that, you know, after the fourth century where things were locked down, things became more clearly, this is what's approved by the councils and this was not, then it became illegal. These writings were, you could be in danger if you were in possession of them. So obviously they stopped being translated. So they were lost. I don't think, but if you look at history, there's an undercurrent through Christian history, in which this information about Mary Magdalene never went away. It was silenced and suppressed, but it can still be found. And I think it's the same today. And you have to, you, if somebody really has a passion and feels led into it, like for me, it wasn't like the, these synoptic gospels that led me into like feeling like she had a message to proclaim or feeling a, a personal connection with Mary. Again, I, I think if somebody feels that connection, yeah, I'd be glad to, you know, help them out. But 
a lot of people just want to knock it and a lot of people just want to find holes in it and approach this from a, you know, more of a typical, like I didn't even fall in love with Jesus um, in my own early Christian days, when I started to really have revelation about the person of Jesus, it wasn't like for me, it was always a personal revelation. And it wasn't because I read it in some book somewhere about Jesus, even though later those came into like information about the gospels and what Jesus taught came into my journey. But that's not how revelation works, you know? So again, I personally, my personal belief is, is that in the Catholics, I feel like have a better understanding of this, but the idea of this communion of saints, like does do people who have passed on, do they still communicate with us? But we believe Jesus does, right? I believe, I don't believe death ends a relationship. I think, I don't believe death silences a person's voice because I feel like people move, people still have existence beyond their body. And I believe that the, the Catholics understand this, they call it the communion of saints, but I believe it. And I think that if we are open to this, that we can actually have communion with with our brothers and sisters that have passed on. And I think for me, I think for me, Mary Magdalene, just like in the same way, I I feel like I have a connection with her. Not, it wasn't my own doing. I just feel like that came to me. I started to come awake to these things and have really enriched my life. And I think Christianity would be better off, uh, quote unquote, Christianity, however you want to call that. If we understood that her message is actually unique, um, and uniquely a little bit different than what the other disciples proclaimed um, for a reason, because I, I think that's, and that's a whole other part of this conversation, which we can get into. But I honestly think if somebody feels compelled to to know more about this journey that I'm on with Mary, I mean, I'd be glad to talk. I'd be glad to dialogue with anyone about that. I just don't want to put it out there because um, again, the, if you want to read the gospel of Mary Magdalene, I mean, you don't need me for that. Like, yeah. go do that. You can go look that up yourself, you know, Thomas, whatever. But if you want to know my journey and the stuff that I've used, then contact me personally and I'd be glad to, so, to talk about that. Yeah. So Jamal, you said you just, you just finished saying that you felt like Mary Magdalene has something to offer that's diff, you know, unique and different and, and uh, of special value, however you phrased it. So um, can you, first of all, explain what that message is? And then second of all, where someone could find that, if not in the Gnostic Gospels? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I, first of all, I think when Jesus, before Jesus died on the cross, um, it, obviously the disciples looked to him for guidance, and um, and and obviously that when he was taken, when he was, you know, you know, died. I mean, that was a, an abrupt kind of shift in the way things were, and. Um, I think had Jesus wanted, I think there, it was, it was not, it wasn't finished in the sense of like, it was finished, but it wasn't finished in the sense of like, there was more revelation. Um, we, we commonly refer to Jesus as the last Adam, you know, and that kind of thing. And Paul talks about that. Um, and obviously, and then people refer to the, the, the church, the followers of Jesus as the bride, the Eve, or however you want to call that, the, the bride of Christ, or, or if he's the last Adam, then the church is the Eve, which is pretty, I mean, honestly, like I get it at a corporate sense, but I think if you really want to know what God is like, you have to look at not just at male, you have to look at male and female. And so just as there was, you know, we, we can look at the prototypical humanity in the story in Genesis with Adam and Eve. I do believe you, what you're seeing is the redemption of humanity in the person of Jesus and the Eve so to speak. And I believe that to be Mary Magdalene. And I think she People who know you intimately, like, and this is true in all of our lives, no people can, may listen to my podcast 
or my read my, the things I write, and they may get a sense of what I taught, but no one really knows the nuances and depths of what I believe other than the folks who are in intimate relationship with me. And in when you look at the disciples, there was an intimacy that he had with Mary that was recognized by the disciples that was different than the rest of the disciples and was recognized by many within the early church as being uniquely different than the, the relationship that he had with the, the male disciples. So there's this intimacy, this closeness with Mary. So it would, it, it, it's very logical that, so why, if Jesus wanted to just like put them all on the same playing field, in that way. I'm not talking about in a hierarchical leadership kind of way. I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about honoring the depth of the relationship and the nuances of what that would communicate. If he, I believe that Jesus knew Peter and some of these male disciples had issues. They did not get it. They had, they still had these old paradigm and old ways of thinking. And so if Jesus just wanted to put them all kind of in just on the same playing field and like have them all just talk amongst each other, he would have appeared to them all individually or, or corporately at once. But I believe that in the resurrection, there's a lot happening. Why he resurrected in the garden with, in, uh, with Mary alone. I think there's so much in that. There's so much being communicated in that. And then sending her saying, you go and tell my other brothers that I'm alive, that I go to my God and your God. And he like, basically you, I, and that actually would be very challenging because he could have literally appeared to all of them and said the same thing, but he's like, I want you to go establishing it. Really what it does is it puts her at a place where like, why you? And that's a great question. Why, why, why not appear to all of us? Well, no, because there's something significant. And if we look at some of the other writings that are, uh, that we know other non-canonical writings about what happened post-resurrection is you see the disciples asking Mary, Tell us the other things that the Savior taught. And obviously, some of this is communicated in the Gospel of Mary. Um, but, it, but it's like, okay, tell us the other things. And that indicates that there is something that she has to say that is uniquely hers to say. And a lot of that, um, it, and I think you, you can get into some of these writings, talks about, um, again, Mary wasn't a, a, a zealot. Mary was not somebody steeped in the law. Mary wasn't some somebody that was wrestling with, you know, how much law do we bring into this new this new thing? You know, that that's what Peter was wrestling with, and, and to some extent, Paul was too. Paul was a zealot. Paul was a, somebody trained in the law. If you look at some of Paul's writings, you can see him working this out. I don't. I think with Mary, nobody had the relationship with Jesus that Mary had, and I think if you look at the history. She went to Egypt. There were Christian communities established by Mary in Egypt. You can you can find out about those communities and find out the emphasis of the things that she taught. You can do the same thing in France, and you can find out the emphasis. And lo and behold, a lot of the emphasis of what she taught was, you know, really anti-law, going internal, living by an indwelling life, really um, understanding the depths and the nuances of love, emphasis on relationship not looking to any hierarchical councils or anybody that's like, like literally the opposite of everything that Christian history did was her message. Um, and I don't, you know, there's a reason the acts of the, 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 of the apostles do not include her. You know, there's a reason that most of our new Testament, um, doesn't include her writings because you can't build a nation state on those things. Um, her emphasis is so radically different. Again, I'm not knocking some of the things that Paul said. I'm not knocking some of the things that, you know, the other New Testament writers said, but it's woefully uh, incomplete well, because she had a message that 
um, the emph- that was later later labeled Gnostic. Uh, because we're talking about in, in this indwelling wisdom, it's not Jesus. It, honestly, her message wasn't idolatrous. It wasn't Jesus focused. I know that sounds crazy. I don't think Jesus' message was Jesus focused. Jesus pointed beyond himself to the transcendent way, which is the Christ consciousness way, which is Mary's message, um, which you don't find. A, I mean, you, you, you Paul touches on it, but he doesn't go into depth with it that Mary does. And that's what I, I mean. Like, I, I, I see what you're saying on, uh, and I have the same, I, I'll let people take a shot now because I'm going to problematize something. I, I think you're right. Like, we can't just say because it's in the canonical Gospels or the synoptic Gospels that it's true and the Gnostic Gospels are false. I think it's much more nuanced than that. And um, as, as Keith, we were, we were, you know, text, we were messaging each other back here while you were talking, Jamal, like the, the Gnostic Gospels do emphasize the special relationship that Jesus and Mary had. And that's pretty clear. I mean, like um, when they're having these debates, Peter and Andrew and the the lot of them, they acknowledge that Mary or Jesus loved, quote unquote, loved Mary more than than the rest of them. But we don't get that in the synoptics, but that doesn't mean that it's not true or or that one's true and one's not just because it's in the Bible. So I'll I'll give you that. Um, I'm just not... Like, I, I think Paul got Jesus. I mean, I think he was speaking to his cultural context a lot. And that's where a lot, that's the context with which he approaches his writings. Um, but I'm just not sure we can even say what you said about Mary. I mean, I'm not going to discount your personal experiences. I thought your story um, about the Camino and all that, like, I wouldn't, just because I haven't had that experience doesn't make it not true, right? You see? Uh, I mean, that's, I'm never going to discredit that. Um, But I'm not sure what we can say in the Gnostic Gospels or even, I mean, like Mary didn't write the Gospel of Mary. Um, So, so we're going off of something that um, we can't say necessarily, we'll just be, just like we can't say just because Jesus says in Matthew that Jesus actually said that. I think there's a lot of problems with that. And, and, you know, the writer inserts things. So I, I don't know. I, I, I can't place too much emphasis on what someone said Mary said. I would be more inclined to feel your story and say, yeah, what? Because Mary was a disciple. I won't discredit that. Mary wasn't a, you know, like she had a close relationship, I believe, with Jesus. Um, yeah, I agree. And, 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 and in that whole like communion with the saints, I would say, yeah, right on, Jamal. If you feel led by a disciple, like, of course, I wouldn't discredit that with Mary. I would just not go so far as to say, at least me personally, um, that like Paul didn't have that understanding just because he came with a lot of baggage um, or that he he was a teacher of the law and he was a Pharisee of Pharisees and, and according to him was perfect according to the zeal of the law. So yeah, he has that. Um, but I, I don't know. I just think that we can't discredit yeah, and, and what and, Paul said. Yeah, and I don't. I don't mean things. to. I don't mean to discredit Paul as much to say that Paul. Paul's coming from an angle, but it's not the whole story. And it's to me. Right, it's, I would, yeah, so, I would be okay with that. Yeah, I agree with that. So, sometimes something is so obviously missing that it's like that. That has to be abnormal. Like sometimes something is so abnormally mis- missing that it even speaks louder. So to me, Mary Magdalene is so ridiculously missing from the Acts of the Apostles and the New Testament, that it begs the question, how did Jesus' closest relationship 
on the earth and the woman he appeared to first and resurrection be have nothing to say. And that, to me, that's just, it's weird. First of all, um, in Jewish, uh, in, in, in Jewish culture, when a man, especially, first of all, a rabbi was, you couldn't be a rabbi unless, and again, this is not me making any statements. These are just the facts of culture. And I'm just stating that you can wrestle with it. I'm not saying yes or no, this is the way it was, but rabbis were married. They weren't single. So if Jesus was single, that's an, not, that's very unique. So also when he would die, when, when, when a, when a married man would die, they were, they, the, the, their what quote unquote spouse was the one who would prepare their body for, for burial, because obviously it's a very intimate thing. You see the naked body, that kind of thing. If a man was single, it would be his mother. So even in the canonical gospels, we see Mary Magdalene being the woman who is given this task, which is an interesting thought. Then once you get into what I do find very fascinating, however, and again, yes, Mary did not write the the her the gospel of Mary, but most most gospels, there were over 200, from what I understand, over 200 gospels in the first couple centuries, accounts of statements and teachings of Jesus. And most of them were not written by, uh, but they were written in the name of somebody. So a lot of people say, well, it's a fraud. Mary didn't write it. Well, no, no one is saying Mary wrote it. And even... If no, I'm not. Saying, I'm not saying that either. It's like a it's, it's, it's a pseudo. What they call it, pseudographical account. Well, well, it's called. Yeah, it's called the Gospel of Mary because it's about Mary. Like, I, yes. yeah, I'm and, not and saying that. Influ- like, yeah, yeah. It, it was written by communities that were influenced by her message. So in in the second century, so the Gospel of Mary was actually compiled in the second century. Later copies of that were found, like sixth century copies of the Gospel of Mary is what we found. But we know that it was a second century. Um, writing. And so um, it, what I find to be fascinating is that there are entire Christian communities that weren't called Gnostics in the second century. They were not labeled as heretics in the second century. They were widely accepted in the community of faith. And these were folks that uh, were that were really influenced by Mary's teaching, uh, unlike other parts of the church that were influenced more by Peter's teaching or Paul's teaching. So Mary had a stamp on these communities in, in in Egypt in the second century, and then later in France in, in the second century. And these communities believed, now I'm not saying this is the way it was, but I think it's interesting that, and this is communicated in some of the Gnostic, quote unquote, Gnostic gospels, that these communities believed that she was the wife of Jesus. They actually state that in the writings. It was not considered heretical at the time, only after the fourth century when the all-male councils canonized the approved writings. And then of course, all this other, all these other writings became seen as Gnostic and labeled as Gnostic. And then they were all just one swoop of the pen, all considered heresy. That's when it became heretical. But in the first two centuries, you had entire, this is what I find to be fascinating. In the first two centuries of Christianity, you had entire groups of people that were following Mary's. Mary had a vibrant ministry after the resurrection. She had a voice. She had a message. And those folks that she influenced believed her to be the spouse of Jesus. And I find that fascinating. And we don't hear anything about it except for in Dan Brown novels, which is which is unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I, so I, I wanted to jump in if I could here. And we and we're, need to wrap this up pretty soon. Uh, but plenty of stuff I know to talk about in the bonus round. Um, well, I, I just wanted to reflect on my perspective on listening to what you're saying, Jamal. Like, uh, I think you bring up some good points and then I think there's some, I think some of the things you're saying are possible 
from my perspective, I, I, th- I say, well, that's maybe that's true. Uh, like some of the things you're saying about Mary, but I, but I think that, um, I, I think the assumption, and you know, Matt just kind of jumped on that a second ago. Like, um, we only get the idea that Jesus had some kind of special relationship with Mary Magdalene if we look outside the Synoptic Gospels. Whether that is because somebody scrubbed the Synoptic Gospels uh, and and eliminated and erased uh, that special relationship from the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, and the book and the and Acts and things like that, um, and that it only appeared in the Gnostic Gospels. Uh, so either it's true, and it's just and it's just true, and the only way we have evidence of it is is in what we now call the Gnostic Gospels of of Mary and Philip and Thomas and things like that. Um, or it, it wasn't necessary that Mag- Mary Magdalene had a had a genuine had a, had a deeper relationship with Jesus than Peter, James, and John and these guys that hung out with him for three and a half years uh, and traveled around with him. Now, I would also say, though, at the same time that, I mean, I think Jesus had an, had an incredibly deep relationship with two other women, with, uh, with Martha and Mary, the sisters of Lazarus. Uh, I think there's an incredible, powerful statement that Jesus makes at Mary sitting at his feet as a disciple. Here's a woman sitting at his feet as if she's a disciple, and Jesus makes a very bold statement that she's chosen something better, which is to be a disciple, as even as a woman, which was scandalous at the time. And then he's, but then he says, what she has chosen, or what she, you know, what 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 she has chosen will not be taken from her. Which is a very bold, strong statement. That so I do believe Jesus had female disciples. I I, I do agree that we probably only hear about the men. Um, I, I don't even disagree that with the possibility that Mary Magdalene had a had a vibrant ministry in the first century. Um, and, and in fact, I think Paul, uh, we're, we're kind of knocking Paul a, a little bit, but I think if you, if you discount, and I do the pastoral epistles and you look at the other writings of Paul, you see Paul honoring women. I mean, when Paul says about, I think it's, is it Phoebe that Paul says, actually, I had, right. I had marked this. I think it's in Romans. He says, well, Romans I come into our sister Phoebe. Right. Yeah. He, he says, our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Sencre, give her in union with the Lord, a welcome worthy of saints. And help her with anything she needs. And here it is. For she has been a ruler over many, indeed over me. So Paul elevates her above even himself. That's huge, right? We have Junia, who's a female apostle. We have uh, Dorcas and other females. I mean, Lydia, who was the, the first convert and led the first church in Ephesus. So uh, we have a, you know Priscilla and Achilla. So I think you had all sorts of women taking the lead in the early church. And I agree that's very sad that some of that was scrubbed out uh, as men kind of took over in the late second and third centuries. There's but I don't know that necessarily, I don't, I, I'm just real quick, let me wrap up. I, I don't think that necessarily, I'm not convinced that Mary Magdalene has some unique special position as a woman that would be, that would eclipse or even rival these other women that I've just mentioned. Oh, like, I, I think there yeah. were a lot of women yeah. that were also... Well, Silence. Yeah, I would. That that's where we would disagree. I actually think that her silence speaks louder to her unique relationship because it's so ridiculous that she has no voice. Even to the fact that, again, if you just read the Synoptic Gospels, you would think that there's all these different Marys. Look, the Mary of Bethany is Mary Magdalene. I believe that very clearly. The Mary that sat at his feet was the beginning of their relationship. Um, there's so wait, 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 wait. Can I ask something? So, so you think Mary Magdalene is the sister of Martha yes. and? 
Absolutely. Lazarus. Absolutely. Now, the reason we don't know that is just because we're attached to these four gospels and we're not, we're not, but in the first, first century that, that these four gospels were, I mean, first of all, the stories of Mary traveled wide and far and are written and contained in a lot of different places. But if you get into the history of Mary Magdalene in some of these communities in Egypt and Southwest France, all this stuff is very, is known amongst these people. Like, again, we, post fourth century reading these four gospel accounts that scrub her and really don't talk a lot about her. It's really confusing. They're like pieced together. And we have a little story here of the woman who sat at Jesus feet, you know, and she was called Mary. And then, you know, and these different, like, which Mary is it? Like, how do we know which Mary? Well, you wouldn't know. But again, I don't believe there was a woman that holds, there is nobody on the same level of, of, in early Christianity as Mary Magdalene. And if you get into the history of early Christianity, you'll see Mary had a voice that so far surpasses anybody that Paul mentions, you know, and, um, and, and, and she rightfully should because she had the, this unique understanding of Jesus in a way that no one else did. And I don't think it's on par. It's the other disciples who continually, like they had to unpack things and work it out. And they, there was a reason Jesus did not want them to be the spokespeople of, of his movement and look what the heck it's done. So, you know, I, I just so, feel like, so, yeah. I just wanted to ask, like, so you keep saying Mary has this unique uh, perspective and vision of Jesus, yeah. but I don't know where we would find that and how would we know that? Well, I think that's the journey. I think that's where the journey, I mean, again, you can, you can, you can read the, the, uh, the, the quote unquote Gnostic gospels and get a feel for it. Um, but again, well, I have, I, I have read, I have read those. Yeah. In fact, like the, the, the gospel of Mary is, is two pages front and back. It's right. seriously, it's four pages. It's, 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 there's nothing you put you in know, your pocket. I, I think I would, I would, I would direct people to start asking questions versus here's the answer. The question is number one, why does the acts of the apostles not mention her when other writings do, when she did have a voice, when she did go to Egypt, she did go to Southwest France. There is a lot of his, historicity that can confirm that. Why did, why are we, why do we not know about these things in the synoptic gospels in the acts of the apostles? That should be a question people should ask. Number two, why did the Catholic church murder uh, tens of thousands of people in, in France? Um, what is the purpose of keep of killing these people? What were, what were their teachings? What did they believe? And why did the Catholic church see it as a, as a threat to their existence? These are just questions people should look at the history. Again, you're not going to you're not going to get that you know in your seminary history. You're not going to get that in your Roman Catholic histories because they're, they're the ones. But if you but it can be found. People should do the work. Dan Brown novels get a lot get knocked because they're like it's fictional and he and he makes some stuff up. But the reason that's called historical fiction is because there are things in his accounts that are actually historical. That's why it's a historical fiction. So people shouldn't just knock it and say, "Oh, it's Dan Brown. It's fictional." There are true things that can be discovered in history. And if you start tracing, start, tr start doing, start doing it. If, if again, somebody has to feel compelled to do this again, if you, if it's not important to you, if you don't care, if you're like, cool, I'm fine, then fine. Just, it's totally fine. It's not a big deal. <laughs> but like, if somebody actually wants to know why doesn't this woman have a voice, did she have a voice? You can start looking into it and realize there's a conspiracy. I believe I, I, there was a conspiracy to cover her voice up because you would never, again, you can't build a religion on the things that she taught and you can't build a, I don't think you can build a religion on the things that Jesus taught, but most of Christianity isn't what Jesus taught. Most of the writings of Paul, it honestly is, is a lot about how the church should function, different things. The new Testament wasn't that big of a threat to the nation state of Rome. That's why they made it. And that's why they, 
<laughs> so it, it's really not that well, revolutionary. Well, obviously, like we're at we're at over an hour. <laughs> And we could continue this conversation <laughs> longer and longer, but we are going to have to wrap it up. But you know what? I think if you want, I mean, it's a good opportunity. Uh, and I'm sure Jamal, I don't want to speak for you, but you'll be available in the Facebook group. Like this is where this is where the Facebook group comes in. Um, so if you're not in the yeah. Facebook group, join the Her- Happy or the Heretic Happy Hour Facebook group. And <laughs> and, and, and this yeah. is this is the point: is that when we get to the end of a conversation, the conversation goes on in in that place, and also on Patreon. And, um, so it's a perfect opportunity to extend the conversation that we could, we could go probably three or four hours, but that's just, we're not going to waste your guys' oh, time. So, so take the opportunity to do that <laughs> and hit us up, call Jamal, ask questions on the, uh, the hotline also, 240-3-Heresy. That's right. Plenty, plenty to think about. Right. And if you join Patreon, we're going to keep talking in a bonus round that you only will get if you become a supporter on Patreon. <laughs> That's right. And Jamal's going to tell you the name of the book. (laughs) Maybe.